Hey, do you teach yoga? Have you ever trained to lead yoga classes to be a yoga therapist? Have you ever owned a yoga studio? Maybe even just wondered what it was like for the women and men up there in front of the room on their mats, leading you through endless Surya Namaskars, down dogs, and pranayamas galore? Well, these are their stories and mine. I'm Rebecca Sebastian, a 20-year yoga teacher, 10-year yoga therapist, yoga studio owner, and co-founder of a yoga-focused nonprofit. I've done a lot in the yoga world over the last 20 years, pretty much everything except had a water cooler. You know, a place to share stories, talk about struggles, successes, and find other people who do the same thing that I do. Welcome to Working in Yoga, a podcast and substitute water cooler for yoga folks to connect and build community, to share our unique profession, our challenges, and our journeys with the world. Welcome to Working in Yoga, friends. It's Rebecca here, and this week I'm welcoming Alexandra Salas to the podcast. Now, this conversation is one of my new favorite topics, and I'll say that in the intro when I start talking to Alexandra, but how we are effective teachers and sharers of yoga digitally. Now, Alexandra is a professor at a university, and higher education has been in the digital learning model for a minute, longer than we have in yoga. Now, I have been talking recently about how amazing the yoga industry's transition into digital learning was. Like, March 15th, 2020, we were all shut down. March 16th, 2020, we all had a Zoom link to share with all of our students. And honestly, I would challenge you to go find an industry that responded faster than we did. We did a really great job. But now I want us to get better. Now I want us to think more creatively and more deeply about how we can share digital learning to our students in our communities. And that's exactly what I'm talking about with Alexandra today. Now, before we get into that, I want to tell you a couple things. One is that you can support the podcast going to workinginyoga.com and there's a link to support if you want to support me and the work that I'm doing here on the podcast. I would be ever so grateful for your support. Any contribution helps. And secondly, I am co-teaching a workshop at the end of July, July 28th with my friend Carrie Uranga from Drishti Yoga Teacher Training Program. Now, Carrie and her partner, Sarah, have run yoga teacher training programs all over the world. And Carrie and I are talking about what it takes to host amazing retreats in 2022, 2023, and beyond. So if you are ready to book your retreat for your students, don't sleep on this workshop. Carrie and I will be giving you all of our tips. If you follow me in the work I do in my community, I am an avid event thrower. I have thrown a yoga conference a tea party, and soon to be a brunch in person this year. We're working on retreats in our local area as well as international retreats for 2023, and I can't wait. So if you're interested in that content, head to Instagram at Rebecca Sebastian Yoga or workinginyoga.com. We'll get you the link. Now, without any further ado, here is my conversation with Alexander Salas. Hi, friends. Welcome to Working in Yoga, and 
I have to tell you, I am really excited for this conversation I'm having this week. I have my new favorite friend from Denver when we met at the Yoga Teacher Comp, Alexandra Salas, and she is coming on to talk about, okay, my favorite new challenge in yoga how we are effective digital learners. Now, education is Alexandra's profession. And so to me, I feel like I wanna ask the experts how we can get better at digital learning. So welcome, Alexandra. And will you tell everybody about yourself? Sure, hi everyone. Um, I'm Alexandra Salas and um, I've been practicing yoga for a very, very long time when I was a young girl <laughs> into adulthood, uh, motherhood and and present. And I decided to delve into teaching a couple of years ago. I you know it was a, a desire that I had for a long time, but I just didn't have the time. Uh, but again, that that's an excuse because I, everyone's really busy, right? And so I decided, okay, I made the time and it was during COVID. And so I enrolled at a local school where I would practice and the rest is kind of history. In terms of my professional background, uh, I've been a writer, uh, a professor, and um, an administrator now currently at a community college and the online world has been my uh, focus for, for the bulk of my career. So, you know, it's, it's interesting that now there's like this marriage of both worlds. And so it, I'm really, it's really a pleasure to be here with you uh, to talk a little bit more about, about this. I am so excited. Like this is really this, I'm thrilled for the future of yoga in the digital space, how we can make it smart and accessible. And as we were saying before I hit record, like two years ago in 2020, we just pretty much lifted up an in-person learning experience and plopped it online. And now we can look at that and go, are we, is this skillful enough? Are we conveying information well? Is this what digital learning should look like? And educators have been doing this for much longer than yoga teachers are or have been. So what do you see? Do you see parallels between the the path that education has taken in the digital world and the yoga world? Are we way off course? <laughs> Uh, no, I think I think the yoga world is is right on track, and there are definitely some parallels. And um, and COVID was the uh, the the moment, that tipping point, that demonstrates that parallel, at least in my mind, where in higher education there it, it, higher education that was in person teaching there was always online there were for profit institutions and there also public institutions and state institutions that offered online education but not to the extent where they needed to rely on it and so the level of use and the sophistication of the technology varies and so during covid we learned about those who were really not prepared and those who suddenly said, what about that thing that, you know, so we have some classes that are online. Um, we, we need to do that. We need to uh, learn a little bit more about that. And so they dusted off some of the technology that already existed and they, they, it reached, it reached critical mass, you know, um, in terms of using the tools. So there was a lot, it was a big learning curve, a lot of growing pains. 
but I believe that, you know, we're resilient as, as human beings and have learned. And so there are definite parallels between, um, yeah, education and yoga in terms of how to deliver instruction. There were some in high, in higher education and in K through 12, we had had experience with the technologies, you know, they were progressive forward thinkers. They had invested in the tools, uh, but um, others didn't really pay attention to it because they didn't necessarily have to. But then all of a sudden we found ourselves in this position that we have to. And at that point, that's where the learning began. And the realization that maybe it's time to adapt and adopt and um, insert a little change and innovation in how things are delivered, which will also increase access to the practice and, and education to a lot of people. So I do think that, you know, there's that sweet spot, that common ground between both higher ed and, and yoga. And um, there are a lot of tools out there that can facilitate uh, the delivery. Will it replace the face-to-face, that in-person connection that you have when you go into a studio? No, it's just different. And I think as, as people, we have to be open-minded to trying, you know, testing, piloting a new, a new mode of delivery. And if it's not for you, it's not for you. I mean, uh, online education is not for everybody. However, in a time of need, crunch time, it's because it's convenient. You you adapt. And over time, I believe that we improve in how we organize instruction. And but when I say instruction, I'm, I mean in both worlds. You know, how best to engage our students? Because that's really what you want. You don't want a correspondence course where there's just content, you know, you get some PDFs or PowerPoints with poses and uh, diagrams, and then, you know, somebody has to figure it out. Because in as much as someone could, could write out sequences and cues, not everyone learns the same way. You know, uh, you can go into a studio and someone could show you the sequence and and follow through with the cues. And all of a sudden you make that connection, but you also have to practice it. And education is the same way. Um, So I I think there's a lot of opportunity now that we're at this stage. Oh, my gosh. So you've said so many things that I'm really excited to talk to you about. (laughs) But Let's start first about the accessibility piece, because that to me is what makes me all in in figuring out how we can make really skillful digital content, because it does make us so much more accessible, especially to humans who either don't have easy access to a yoga studio or cannot easily afford to come to where we are. Maybe the studio's in their town or a certain kind of yoga and they want to learn a different kind of yoga. Maybe they just frankly don't have the easy ability to leave their homes. Like folks with disabilities don't get to come and participate in any of our things at studios because we're often not accessible in that way for those humans. And online allows us to reach more people in a way that means that we can speak to different communities. We can share what we love with different people. And do you find that parallel in education too? Has the shift to online learning in higher ed made education more accessible to you? I think we have to be careful when we talk about using digital technology 
for accessibility because there's also that equity issue that not everyone had access to the internet or not everyone had a laptop. So in our quest to make education accessible, we also have to think about where the deficiencies are and where the needs are and where the gaps are. So we could address those at the same time to ensure that this advance advancement will be accessible. You know, it's almost as if we were able to give away, uh, you know, smartphones to everybody. That's fantastic. But if there's no power or there's no access to internet, it's just a paperweight, you know, so that's, that's yeah. the same premise. Uh, so with online education, absolutely. It made education convenient because the students who had to take a bus or had, you know, had to take transportation to get to school. Now they didn't have to, but for those who, and those who had to work to provide for their families or, you know, or to provide for themselves, now they could, could still take, you know, have an education, but work it around their schedule. So in terms of the convenience, it was definitely there, but we also had to look at those two students who had, uh, challenges where they didn't have access to or good access to um, in, to in, an internet connection or didn't have devices. So at my institution, for example, we have a, a laptop distribution program uh, and we also provided um, mobile, you know, like hotspots so that students in need could have access to it. Uh, you know, and other institutions have done the same thing. Because we realize that, you know, in addition to basic needs, you know, and resources, if online education is going to be an, a viable option for students, then we also have to look at the student holistically and what are their needs, you know. And so it, with yoga, it's the same thing. If we look at students who have disabilities but, but want to learn about yoga, want to teach yoga, you know, want to practice yoga. This is a great way for them to get started. They could have one-on-ones through, you know, video, a video platform. But then if an organization truly wants to serve that community and also certify uh, students who have disability to also be teachers, then they can create cohorts, almost like retreats. So a lot of the instructions happens in this format, but then there are special events or or activities where they may have the opportunity to meet one-on-one or meet as a group physically in person because that is priceless and it's it's very important but it would be more costly if it had to be day to day you know because you have to think about the transportation and is you know is the 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 studio accessible and you know is how easy is it for these individuals to transport themselves to the location and to do it on a daily basis or several times a week? Sometimes it's it's not possible. But if they know that there's a curriculum where they can do most of the co- coursework at their own pace or online uh, with you know weekly deliverables, they have exchanges with their instructor. They can see each other. They have discussion forums. You know, so they're really engaged. But then they get to meet maybe at the end of the program to have a a retreat or a workshop or multi-day workshop, they can plan for that because I think that they should not um, be dismissed, you know, and that part shouldn't be dismissed because they need that, that application so that they can teach others, you know, whether it's chair yoga or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, So I, I think that there's really an opportunity. We just have to revision and rethink how we deliver instruction. 
can I just say you knocked that answer out of the park? <laughs> Thank like, you. <laughs> like, that was the best possible answer because I so agree. There's, I, I love how you're rethinking this idea, the experience that we could be both online and in person and humans, we can plan for those in-person moments if they're not with as much frequency as when, you know, when I did a teacher training, I don't know how yours was. Mine was a long time ago, but it was every other weekend and it was eight to 10 hours and we were just there the whole time. And that, what about humans who work on Saturdays? They could never train because every teacher training was on a Saturday. Still is actually in my area. Most of them still are. Um, But they could plan for a Saturday where you get together. That's really innovative. I love that. You know, and it's that human connection. Like, yes, like I, I love seeing you now. Like I see your tile, but if I had not met you in person, like I hit it off with you, like we connected, you know, and, and so now this, you know, makes sense. Not that we probably would not have connected in this format first, but, you know, it's kind of sanitized to just be a tile on a screen and, you know, people have different sensory needs and, you know, you just, you, you just connect differently. So I think it's really critical importance to recognize those needs when we're planning. You know, when I did my aerial training, it was in a hybrid format and, and it was great because then you build that connection, you build that bond, you get that sense of belonging you get to make the mistakes in person and get the assists and, you know, and just under have an, have an understanding that there's, you know, that there are others who are also learning and, and to connect with the instructor. Cause I, I think if you as a student have a connection with your instructor, it just makes a world of difference. You know, it makes you a better teacher. Yeah. It makes you a better learner. And it's just a fantastic experience. So I'm going to switch gears just slightly because I'm also interested in your thoughts on time. Um, Oftentimes we're lifting up a one hour class or a three hour training and then putting three hours digitally. And I've, I've been curious about if you feel that humans learn digitally better in bite sized chunks, say 10 to 20 minutes at a time versus one hour video. Um, do you see any of that in the higher education space? Or do you feel like people really can sustain that longer, like our two hour long learning period? No, because learning isn't watching a movie, you know, and I think that when we're trying to really engage a learner so that they so as they're learning, they're processing, they may have questions, and then you want to have a knowledge check. So it's a best practice to chunk information. So let's say you have a one hour segment that that's what you, that's what your plan is. You need to chunk that one hour segment. If you just show, if, if the student sees, I have to sit and watch this one hour thing before they even get started, they're already stressed about it because maybe they want to, but they don't have the time or we don't have the attention span or we're just busy. But if things are uh, chunked in, in modules or, you know, the, and they're also captioned, you know, you want to provide it in different formats so it's, so it's accessible. 
or everyone. And it's, and when I say accessible, it's really universal design. It's not accessibility for someone with a disability. It's accessibility for everyone. There are times where I can't read something, but if I have the audio version, then I'm going to listen to it on my drive. So I still get the work done. And, and so it serves two purposes. Ooh, Ooh, you've, We'll talk audio in a minute too, because I, lo- I love the the shift into audio learning as well that I'm seeing happen in yoga for sure. But this is something I've noticed. So I my yoga studio runs a digital studio. And even in 2020, the emails I got from my students were, oh my gosh, that five minute video on that one breath, that was what I loved. Nobody was sending me those emails about the one hour live stream class that they were watching a replay of. But it was that smaller, more, like you said, chunked is the word you use, like modulated learning of, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 minute videos, where if I put them in a sequence and I said, start here and end here, people could see transformation and progress. And I, I, it's seeming to me that that's what you're experiencing also in higher education. Yes. Yes. Because um, when when an instructor has, you know, has this, the obligation is assigned to teach a 50 minute class or a three hour class, it's impossible to, to think that your students will be attentive for even the 50 minutes within that 50 minutes, you have to build in questions, discussions, reflection. There, there have to be activities so that a student gets to process and and learn and think about what's being shared. So I, I think the same can be applied in in yoga. So that I guess that dovetails into my next question, and I'm going to use educational terms, and I'll define them quickly for those who are listening. Um, there's a difference between synchronous and asynchronous learning. So synchronous learning in the yoga community, if you're live streaming a class and you're on Zoom, and you have a whole bunch of other boxes in front of you, they're there live, that would be synchronous learning. The teacher is learning, and the student are learning at the same time. But also, we have this idea of the replay, or asynchronous learning, where somebody comes back and teaches or learns something or watches a video when the teacher isn't there live. And I'm curious if you feel like even, like, like with asynchronous learning, you still you were referencing that we're going to do modules, right? Like a little bit at a time. And like you said, it seems like even you feel like even when we're live streaming, those moments of checking in are really important, pausing and reconnecting. Right. Is, am I hearing you correctly in that? Yes. Yes. So it's different. If we're teaching, it's different than live streaming a class because in a class, while an in the studio, an instructor can walk around and assist a student, you know, check uh, posture, alignment, et cetera. They can't really do that when they're looking at, you know, 10 other tiles to see and interrupt the class because it's going to eat up the class time and the live stream. Um, so, you know, if that live stream is going to be shared out so it can be replayed, I think it has to be remastered in such a way. So it allows for the student to, you know, to take pause, you know, and, and work on things as if they were getting an assist, you know, so it's, it's 
again, it's about revisioning how we're delivering. I mean, I think, and I always go back to the early days when, you know, newspapers were a thing. And uh, right before, you know, in the in the late 90s, you know, when websites started to become uh, more popular and you started to see how mainstream newspapers such as like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal launched websites. But initially the newspapers, the content was exactly the same, which was a step forward. However, the industry quickly learned that because the convenience of a website, you know, they could be more dynamic. They didn't have to wait until they published the next the next day to issue a correction or to tweak a story, you know, so we need to do the same thing just because we get we're we're comfortable and we figured out a way to do it. Some things can stay, but other things can be modified and adapted to the current needs of the time. I'm just <laughs> applauding because <laughs> I, I like want more of these conversations because we we've pulled in this one part of digital learning, but now I feel like we've sort of stopped. We've stopped talking about how to make it better. And exactly what you said, if you're going to provide a replay, remaster it so that it is for the people who weren't there for you live. Um, that's so smart. I, I love that. So much like, like I've got my fists like, like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to me about audio is, do you see a shift in education on people lecturing in an audio platform in my virtual studio? We have audio yoga, audio only yoga and audio only like meditation walks and things like that. Um, I think that in terms of audio, I'll, I'm going to go back to accessibility. So there are like, for example, um, the learning management system, schools use different learning management systems. These are platforms that allow them to create modules and deliver instruction. So there, so there's like Blackboard, there's Canvas or Brightspace, there's Moodle. Um, so there, so Blackboard has also create, also has a tool called Ally. And Ally is an accessibility tool that integrates with the learning management system. It works with multiple management learning management systems. And what it does is, is allows for an instructor and the learning management administrator to see uh, a dashboard that shows the accessibility of all the content. So are the links broken? Um, does Is this Word document accessible? And it can, and, and it can also create accessible versions of a document. So it can create Braille, it can create an audio um, mm. file. So, so while I can't say that instructors are now creating audio versions of their courses, we have the tools to provide audio versions of material for students who prefer to use that format. So, so that's what I'll say in terms of the audio. I think that depending on the discipline, some instruction or some, you know, some faculty are very interested in the use of, you know, SoundCloud and you doing podcasts because they feel that it's just another, another medium that they, either they're interested or their audience or students as their audience are, are interested in. 
And it's just a wonderful, very uh, modular you know, format that, you know, you can take it with you anywhere. You don't even have to hold it. You just, you know, as long as you can have your ear pod in your ear, you can, you can learn. And then you can attach documentation. You can attach PDFs and, and PowerPoints or whatever you want, and even video to the audio, but to have that conversation or have that audio in such a way that, you know, you're in the person's ear, I think it's just a beautiful way to learn. I do too. I have to say, I didn't know that we were going to talk about audio. I'm so excited we did. <laughs> like, it It is. And I, I do think even though people feel like yoga might be something you can learn visually or it is you you learn by watching other people. I will tell you my first real deep dive into yoga was from books I read. I was copying the pictures in the books in like the 90s, okay? Like I'm 43, it was the 90s. (laughs) But I do think what we do can translate to so many different mediums. And as like, as we step into this idea that we're, we're teachers and teachers shared knowledge with students, like embracing how people learn differently is really exciting to me. Like you've said so many really wonderful things about this. So before we finish up, do you have any final like thoughts or ideas about how we shift um, to be more skillful in our teaching online? I would say that uh, to be more skillful, I think having additional conversations, you know, not uh, avoiding silos right? And learning from each other, you know, and I I think it's brilliant to just, you know, like at at the teacher conference where we were, that is a great opportunity because yoga teachers are everybody, there there are many layers to people. So yoga teachers are yoga teachers, but they're they're also moms, they're dads, they're brothers, they're sisters, they're, they're men, they're women, and they're many things. And they also have other interests. So in this world of yoga, uh, we're, you know, I look at it holistically and there's people have so many different skill sets and there's people across different industries and uh, also paying attention to the trends in higher education and in technology, I think uh, are good ideas so that we can learn how other areas, other countries are also sharing and learning. Also, the use of open education resources, that's a big thing in higher ed, where which also increases accessibility. You know, teachers can can co-teach, co-publish, co-produce. You can share, repurpose, remix already existing resources. And I'd like to see more of that in in the future. You know, the use of of retreats and uh, and and trips and workshops. Uh, It's just it really complements. The learning it one does not supplant the other it's just about providing learners with just options so that they can curate their own learning and and solidify their learning strengthen their learning by being able to pick and choose how they might learn best and yeah that's pretty much it <laughs> <laughs> again you nailed that answer just nailed it <laughs> like, like i'm furiously writing notes like this oh. is So good. So all of y'all who are yoga professionals out there, listen to what Alexandra has to say. Like we can be really skillful and this is exciting. We can shift and change to reach more people and share this thing that we love with so many humans. Like, oh, that's, I love this conversation so much. Like 
come back. We'll talk about it some more. <laughs> I will. I will. This Thank is so you. good. Thank so you. before we go, will you share with us one self-care tip that you, you do for yourself so that we can encourage all our yoga professionals out there to really self-care? If I were to share one tip, I would say dance. Fun. Yes. I, I feel that dancing allows us to free form, free flow, breathe. Uh, it's a form of self-expression and it's, it's moving meditation with music. And I, I love it very much. It relaxes me and it, it fuels my creativity. Ooh, that one's not been said yet. Good answer. <laughs> it is, it is in my top list of like, if I only have 10 minutes and I need to shift my brain, that is exactly what I do right now. I'm turning on Lizzo and just dancing to Lizzo and her new song. Like excellent, excellent answer. Oh, so great. tell everybody where to find you. If they want to follow your work in yoga or connect with you, maybe ask questions where, where are you hanging out? Well, you can find me. My yoga handle is Ajna to Shakti. That's A-J-N-A, the number two, and then S-H-A-K-T-I. And, and that's, that's on, on Instagram. Instagram. Yes. Yep. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, this was such a good conversation. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Okay. Wasn't that conversation amazing? I hope that you went away with at least one new concept or idea of how we can more effectively share yoga with learners in the digital space. Now, I want y'all to know that you can expect a lot more of these conversations coming from me on the podcast going forward. I am really interested in how we get better at sharing yoga in the digital space. But before you go, I have something I want to share with you. So previously, last weekend, the nonprofit I won, the Quad Cities Yoga Foundation, was a finalist for the International Association of Yoga Therapists SEVA Award. Essentially, this award is a partnership between the IAYT and the Give Back Yoga Foundation, highlighting the good work that a lot of humans are doing in the yoga therapy community. Now, one of the joys of this award is that I got to learn about other organizations that are doing really amazing work all across the country. So over the next few podcasts, I'm going to highlight each of these organizations and tell you a little bit about them, because I know that as a person who runs a nonprofit in the yoga world, sometimes we feel lonely because it is a very different type of work that you do in the nonprofit space than the for-profit space. And I want the yoga world to show up and see all the amazing work that these people are doing. So the first organization I'm going to tell you about is called Casa de Paz, S-L-V, and you can find their website at www.casadepazslv.org. And it is holistic trauma support for asylum seekers and new immigrants. It is run by a really rad woman named Gina Barrett. And Gina goes with cohorts to the border of Texas and Mexico to share yoga and yoga therapy with new immigrants and asylum seekers. 
and her work is incredible. So head to her website, give her a shout out on all your socials so that Gina knows that all of us in the yoga community are supporting the work that she is doing. And I will see you next time with another Puja Chronicles. See you then.